two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a couple of special guests, people who have become fellow travelers with me in the investigation of the West Memphis Three. Their names are Nick Vanderleek. He's calling in from South Africa. And here in California, I have Lisa Wilson. Lisa and Nick, are you there? We are. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. There, there'll probably be a tiny little delay, so I apologize, Nick. But uh, their book, they just published a book, uh, one uh, of a trilogy. The title of the book is King of Freaks, Saga of the West Memphis Three. And it's available on Amazon right now. And uh, we're just really grateful for them to take some time out of their day to talk about the book, talk about how they got interested in the subject. But before we get started, um, I could just do a little background on these two authors Nick is a best-selling author and professional freelance photojournalist. He's in South Africa, like I stated. He's done some uh, features for GQ, Iron Man Magazine, Sao Bono, which is a magazine I've never heard of in Country Life. He's also interviewed a wide variety of interesting figures, people like Morgan Freeman, um, some uh, cyclists, Tyler Hamilton, Chris Froome, and a bunch of others. So that's Nick. And then Lisa Wilson, who's a co-author with Nick on this book and some other um, subjects is uh, from, she's been in Florida actually recently researching the Casey Anthony case. She's a blogger. She blogs as Juror thir 13th, if that's correct, Juror 13th. So that is a brief bio of Lisa Wilson. But uh, Lisa and Nick, if you could um, talk about kind of your background as far as true crime and how you uh, became interested in the West Memphis 3. One of you can start, please. I'm going to let Nick take this one because, um, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about what we do. I mean, we, um, I think our narratives are a little bit different because they're more conversational than most. Um, we're really interested in why people do what they do. It's not simply a matter of trying to figure out who did it or how it happened. I mean, certainly that's a part of it. But really what drives us is why crime has happened, the psychology behind it. And certainly there's a lot of very rich psychology in this case. So Nick, why don't you why don't you talk about what inspired you on this case? Uh, well, just to sort of say how I got involved in true crime, um, and it's actually also how Lisa and I met. Um, I um, I was I was friends on Facebook with a someone who ended up becoming a victim, a, mur a murder victim, and um, I sort of felt that she, what, her story wasn't being told, and, and I sort of got more and more um, uh, sort of concerned about it and, and upset about it, actually, and um, I was sort of waiting for them, for her story to come out in the media. I, 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 was, I was waiting for... Uh, her parents to tell her story. I was waiting for her story to come out in court, and, and she just sort of seemed to remain invisible and, and unacknowledged. And very ironically, ultimately, um, Oscar Pistorius was found guilty of murdering an intruder, not not Reba Steenkamp, which is really which is really odd. But um, as a result of that, I um, I felt very sort of um, driven to tell her story, and through the basis of that, um, people who were reading my work um, said you should really um, touch base with Lisa. Uh, they said that she's also got a fantastic uh, amount of insight into the case, and, and you guys should work together. And 
And um, so we sort of got in touch and um, we seem to work as a really good team. Um, you know, I, I would come up with quite a lot of um, research and, and then she'd, she'd find some other things completely different to me and, and then we'd also second-guess one another and make sure that we were on point. And, um, yeah, and then after the Oscar book shoot, we did Jodie Arias and, and, and now we... Um, now it's been two or three years, and and um, yeah, quite a few books later. How many total books have you been involved with, Nick? <laughs> it's actually quite hard to say. Uh, I, um, I I I work at a really high work rate. Um, I'm not sure if it's because of my magazine journalism, but uh, you know, I sort of just write, sort of. Um, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a flourish where I have all the information sort of at hand. And uh, so so um, in quite a short period, I think we've churned out almost three trilogies on the John Bonet Ramsey case. Uh, there are about six books on Jody Arias. Um, there are three books on Amanda Knox. And uh, in total, it's, uh, I don't know, at least it's something like 40 books, I'd say. Wow. Yeah. That's it is over over the course of like uh, I think five five or six different um, trials cases, you know. Gotcha. And uh, you, it's funny because your Skype handle says Nick Vanderleek writing comma what else question mark. So <laughs> sounds like you uh, definitely are attached to your keyboard. But I would love to cover those cases too a little bit about Jody Arias, Amanda Knox, and your kind of position on John Benet. I think those are all fascinating cases. I followed a little bit of Amanda Knox. I found her to be a pretty intriguing individual. There's actually a picture of her and Damien Eccles, the central character of the West Memphis Three, um, together. Have you guys seen that picture? Yeah. 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 So that's a remarkable one. So, um, so you guys have gone through some true crime ones. How did the West Memphis Three come to your attention? Um, it was actually um, someone who sort of contacted us. Someone who's, who's read, you know, many of our, our books, basically. Um, just said you should really do West Memphis 3 and um, I think the way she wrote it was WM3 and I was like what's that you know and so so that that's really how it happened it was simply just someone uh, making a recommendation and um, you know uh, with the John Benet Ramsey um, sort of narrative wrapping up you know Lisa and I um, have worked solidly like bumper to bumper on the Ramsey case since September, mm -hmm. we've written um, eight books um, in in something like six months or something like that, and we we have one book to go, and, and it's quite an important book because it's the last book and it sort of um, really sort of brings everything together. But I sort of wanted a time out from it just just so I could come back to it with a with a sort of fresh um, mind. Um, you know, I really wanted to have the last book really um, sort of finalize everything. And uh, so I sort of wanted to just sort of go into another case and and sharpen some of the sores and things like that. You can imagine if you've written eight books on the same thing, you, you sort of almost get a bit tired or, or a, a bit, um, I don't know, you, you, um, you, it becomes a bit stale. And so you need to, you need to sort of take, it, take a, a bit of a break from it. And so... So, yeah, the, the West Memphis Three um, story, um, I know it's, for me, an incredible 
um, scenario that the crime scene alone is probably one of the most difficult crime scenes um, I think we've dealt with. Um, just a very, very um, difficult crime scene to to work through. Um, I'm not sure if there's even absolute certainty exactly where where the crime actually took place. I mean, we know where the bodies were discovered, but I'm, I'm not sure if there's certainty exactly where um, things happened. Yeah, I don't think that um, there's full certainty about that, but I think the prosecutor believed that it took place on the ditch bank and that bank was slicked down. Um, there was, uh, you know, the pictures of the luminol kind of indicated that there was an area where some terrific, you know, immense amounts of violence took place. So I think that that, at least in my mind, looking at that, kind of luminol evidence, which was never entered in the court, indicates that that's that's where the scene of the crime was, for me. Well, well, you know, go ahead. Um, yeah, look, the, the, the luminol thing, um, you know, obviously is is uh, an indicator, but you know, if you take if you take that and you compare it to, you know, all these other crime scenes that we know about, you know, O.J. Simpson, um, Amanda Knox and so on, you kind of have a contained, very definite um, area, sort of like, um, you know, between four square walls or, or on a veranda or whatever, but you can clearly see where there's blood, you can clearly see footprints, you can, everything sort of on, almost on a kind of a canvas, right? And in this particular crime, um, because it happened um, entirely outside and, and in a very sort of almost like a wild sort of wilderness outside the area, because of the time that the, the, the crime scene was exposed and, um, you know, there was a search through that area that night with, with like lots of people trampling the crime scene. You know, there was never a situation where someone came there and saw blood sort of lying no way you could visually just see the blood. You know what That's I mean? a good point. Yeah, good point. And and in 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 that sense, that the sort of invisible crime scene uh, is always a, is kind of a difficult crime scene. Yeah. So it was unique to your other books, um, and all the brutality of the crime was really something else. I mean, if you look at the, I assume you guys looked through uh, Callahan Eight K. Is that correct? Yeah, yes, really. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if you're aware of this, William, but a lot of the Catalan stuff's gone. I know that the site died recently, but I heard they put it back up. I don't know. I haven't checked it within the last two or four months, maybe. But I knew that uh, it had gone down. As of last week, it was still down. On. I mean, we've been able to go through some of the cache aid stuff, but yeah, no, that's um, that was really a bummer because I know obviously like everything is there, but uh, but there's about. yeah, no, there's there's still quite a few resources out there that we've been able to tap into. Um, you know, I think it's interesting coming into these cases so many years after they've happened. There's there's actually a real benefit to that. I know you know there's some people that have followed these cases for you know 15, 20 years, and they're they're really well versed in it. But there's kind of this this really interesting thing that takes place when you haven't and you come into it with this like brand new set of eyes and ears, and you have this gold mine of information that's out there. It's just you know like any other cold case, you know. Um, 
this isn't a cold case per se, but you know, all of a sudden it's like some new people come in with a new perspective and, and also with experience looking at a lot of other things and you just, you see it with a different, you know, pair of eyes. And, um, so, you know, it, it was funny. I mean, my initial reaction when I started looking at this case was it was very similar to how I felt when I watched Making a Murderer. I know a lot of people um, compare it because of obviously because of the the sense of victimhood and the public feeling like, you know, the, the people involved were wronged. Um, but I had such a different reaction. I mean, when I when I first started reading about this, like I, I didn't get that immediate sense like, you know, the West Memphis Three. um were innocent. You know, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, you know, what have we done here? Like I, and I really couldn't understand how the public could feel that way. Like how, why they do, wouldn't want to know more, like actually really dig into this, get behind, you know, get past the sensationalism and really understand what happened here. Um, this, um, this case is really, really disturbing to me. I, I cannot get those images of the victims out of my head. Like uh, they just, you know, you see, we've covered a lot of stuff and we've seen some really horrific stuff, but there's, I don't know, there is just something about the image of those three boys in the woods that I, I really haven't been able to shake. It, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, extremely graphic. I mean, when you came to this case, did you watch the documentaries first or how did you uh, address the HBO documentaries? Kind of, I mean, I, I think we, we typically when we're doing this, I mean, it just kind of evolves. So we're we're researching everything at the same time. So yes, I mean, we've, we've watched that stuff. We've read a lot of stuff. Um, it doesn't necessarily drive us, but it becomes a part of the, you know, everything that we're looking at. Um, I mean, the reason so, I, the reason I bring that up is because that's the, after watching those three documentaries, that's the main reason the public perception of these crimes was that there was somebody else to blame, whether it was one, one of the stepfathers or the other stepfather. So that. I think is you know analogous to the making of a murderer, where they, you know, sure. kind of uh, bring up there could be somebody else, or there's a miscarriage of justice. I you know I really didn't get that with this one. I mean, I, I would have to say, I mean, you know, okay, in making a murderer, maybe yeah, I can see where you know people are a little bit you know concerned about the actions of considering what happened to Stephen Avery initially. You know, I mean, yes, I mean people can look at that and say, wow, yeah, I mean he really he really got screwed on that first deal, but. But, um, but, you know, but certainly I think it's, this is, there's this crazy perception that like, you know, the police are like out to get everyone. Right. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, investigations don't go bad and whatever, but it's really disturbing to us when these cases become all about botched investigations and, you know, suspicious investigators and the, the case gets lost the victim gets lost. And people really lose their perspective. And so we try to bring that perspective back to say, hey, wait a minute, guys. Let's focus on what actually really matters in this case. Like, let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the the people and their background and their families and their psychology and, and why things happen the way that they did. And, and, and then you kind of get back on track with what's really going on, you know. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great point. Because and in this case in particular, there's a lot of psychological records to... To reference, yeah. you know, maybe not the same in other cases, but this, you know, has that uh, Exhibit 500 where you can really kind of key into the central figure of the case, you know, Damien Eccles. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, um, when I think about, like, Paradise Lost, I, I really honestly don't get how people can look at that and, and not be concerned 
with <laughs> Damien Eccles, where they can simply think that this is just a kid who likes to listen to heavy metal. That that doesn't it really doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, interesting. So as your kind of insider, you know, as your investigation progressed, you know, you kind of it, it looks like from your book you you focused in on you know, people lying and kind of their personalities. Can you kind of, uh, kind of proceed on that line? Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I'm not sure. William, have you read much of the book? Uh, I over, uh, you know, I basically read, scanned through it. I can't say I read the whole thing in complete detail, though. Um, so I'm not sure if you, um, Went through the chapter about killers lie, um, but that's what I was referencing. You know, yeah, that's what I was referencing. Yeah, yeah. So um, people are, you know, the members of the public, um, even a lot of people on forums and so on, that they, they seem to sort of um, almost forget that you know um, someone who's committed murder. Um, that that's like the extreme version of their sins, but, but, but it's not like murderers are, they sort of commit murder and, 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 and otherwise they're sort of honest about what they're doing. Um, everything's dishonest and, and they, you know, um, but the point being that killers lie. Um, not, not everyone who lies um, kill people or murder people, but someone who reaches that point in their life where, where they, they feel that you know, they've, they've got a, a reason or a motive to to murder somebody, um, they're going to, you know, they, I don't really want to swear, but they, they, there's something effed up about them. And, and um, a lot of that is, um, you know, they, they have deceits and so on. But anyway, killers lie. And th that was really how I approached um, this case is, is um, you know, sort of, saw the um, the first documentary. I didn't really want to look at the other two right in the beginning. I did watch West of Memphis, which really <laughs> agitated me. Um, and then there was another movie. Um, um, there's some other movie that was made about it as well. I can't quite remember the name of it. Um, with, um, oh, that was uh, Paradise. Uh, no, it was uh, Devil's Knot. That featured... Yeah, um, yeah, that was not was it. Yeah, for me the the best thing about that movie was the fact that um, it made me think. Um, I think I think it's at the beginning of the of the film. The guy says, calls it in, and he says, "Well, um, they found something at the Devil's Den, I think." And I'm not quite sure where the Devil's Knot comes into it, but. Um, because that made me sort of want to really go and look for, for Devil's Den. And um, th that's an area where I feel hasn't been explored very much. Um, that, that's actually where I believe the crime actually took place, uh, is, is a little um, knoll called Devil's Den. And, um, yeah, so, so you know, and, and that's a big aspect which um, I think brought a lot of protesters along where... where you hear about the hysteria of, of Satanism and so on, and then people think, well, I uh, couldn't, couldn't have anything to do with Satanism, couldn't have anything to do. And, and, and um, that's certainly not in 
you know, we've covered so many crimes and, and uh, uh, that kind of thing doesn't tend to be the, the uh, it's not relevant to, to most of them. Right. But all, all these crimes are different. Uh, you know, right now I'm writing about Madeleine McCann and, and there you have no body. There's no, there's no, um, you know, evidence of, we don't know whether she's been murdered. We don't actually know where she is. Um, so every crime is, is different, but, but there are a lot of things that are, are similar. And in fact, in Amanda Knox case, there's a, there's a, I think it's overblown though, but, but there was sort of allegations that, that, that witchcraft was involved. And Lisa will know this because she's been to Italy, but, but the Italians are very sort of um, religious and maybe a little bit superstitious uh, when, when, when you have a crime like that. Um, but it did take place sort of very close to um, Halloween, right? Halloween. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Menini or whatever his name, I think he was listening to some kind of Roman woman who was like writing about uh, Satanism or the occult or something like that. I, I vaguely remember something like that. Well, uh, Maninox's boyfriend was um, sort of a little bit strange, uh, was very into violent manga, and, but I mean, the point is that it happened um, very close to Halloween. Stephen Avery case also happened um, very close to it. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about this case is um, it happened on uh, May 5th, and it was coinciding with a full moon. Um, if you just look at the numbers, you know, there were three three little boys and and for me one of the simpler ways to understand this case is how do you um in in an uncontrolled environment you know like it's not, it's not inside a home it's not, in, it's not inside a building how are you going to manage three victims at the same time so it's not as though there's three victims over a different period of time just three victims simultaneously and that's not very easy to do. Eight-year-old boys are fleet-footed. Um, you know, two you could still explain, but three not very, not very easy. And Jesse Muskelly is saying that you know he actually had to sort of run after one and, and sort of subdue him. Uh, really, as a ring of truth for me. Um, me too. Well, I haven't read your, book. I haven't read your book, but but what I what I'd be very interested to know is, did you? Um, did you link the three boys to the three perpetrators? Like, did you have one perpetrator sort of attached to a particular victim, or, or not really? Not really. I really didn't. Uh, I really just referenced Miss Kelly's repeated confessions, post-conviction confessions, and I actually just put them in the book in toto at the very end, so people could read them. Uh, because I think, at least at the time when I published that book in 2012. You know, there was only one Jesse confession. It took place in in early June 3rd or whatever, you know, a grueling 12-hour period where he had his teeth pulled out and, his, you know, all this nonsense. So that was really why I included those post-conviction confessions, some of which are recorded on audio. Um, but I never really kind of detailed the exact the way it played out. I just said that they were involved and, you know, they were all they all admitted to doing it at one time or another, so... But, uh, and I do think, and I, I, you know, one of the reasons why I call it devil worship and deception is these guys are definitely involved in the occult. Damien still remains involved in the occult. And that was something that people said was a lie. It was a witch hunt or you're a, 
this is satanic panic. They use these kind of loaded terms, kind of like conspiracy theorists. But um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I think that all the evidence clearly points to them. I don't think that anything involving the stepfathers or anything like that, that's all kind of post-conviction nonsense that was dredged up by uh, PR people and their defense. It makes, I mean, well, it, it, I must say if you, Lisa, I just want to say this quickly. Um, I must say if you buy into the sort of ritual um, killing thing, in other words, if you don't see it as somewhat random, if you don't see it as um, some kind of um, occult mindset behind it, um, then you're, you're not going to see what I'm about to say now. When you do see that, then I think, I really believe, um, you know, the, the title King of Freaks doesn't come from me. It's, it's a name um, that Damon Eccles gave for himself. Right. And when you, it's something I can read a little bit later if, if you like, but um, he, he basically, um, you, you can, you, you really get the sense from some of the interviews that he gave where he basically felt that he was transforming. Um, and, you know, when he was, there's one particular interview where he says, you know, um, people are going to be, people will remember me forever. And, um, you know, and you, that might seem like a, like a throwaway comment, but I really believe that uh, Damien at that stage honestly believed that he was turning into some kind of occult apparition um, based on his psychology and based on his beliefs. In, um, in other words, he, he literally believed that he was um, sort of transfiguring into some kind of uh, almost like magical, powerful being. Yeah. Now, you might think that a crazy thing, and, and it is, it is crazy. No, I think that's true. I think one of the, there was a uh, psychologist who studied... Uh, studied Eccles and said that, you know, during his, his death penalty trial and said that he believed that he was going to be transformed into a god at any time and he was totally distracted from the trial. He had totally strange ideations and then he even wrote post-conviction, you know, he's taking Kool-Aid because he was transforming himself. Very strange stuff. And he kind of still emulates some of that strange kind of behavior. I read, I remember reading recently, he was talking about how he could drink wine and taste the god of the wine, whatever that means. So I agree with you. I, I totally agree with you, Nick, that he is, um, you know, I mean, there's there's definitely a very strong current of, of derangement with Damien Nichols. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is, I think, lost on a lot of people that he's actually, he's mentally ill. And, you know, there's all these celebrities out there running around saying, oh, you know, this poor kid, you know, just because maybe they, you know, they, they felt jilted in their, you know, childhood. And victimhood is a big subject matter for us in this narrative. And it, and it was as well in the, um, the Fool's Paradise narrative about Stephen Avery and, and why people, you know, why people um, associate with these cases. You know, it kind of rings true for whatever happened in their life. And then, um, but yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't escape the fact that Damien is mentally ill. And and a lot of people seem to ignore that. And yeah, I don't mean I that as an excuse for what yeah. he did. I mean it actually it plays into it. I you agree. Know? I totally agree with you. It's actually part of part of the reason why the events happened on May May fifth. Yeah. I just want to um, sort of get to the point about the, the the three victims and the three perpetrators. Um, 
I believe that um, each one is matched to someone else. Um, so, for example, um, it would be Christopher Byers and, and Eccles, Stevie Branch and Baldwin and, and Michael Moore and Maskelly. Now, that, that's not to say that, um, you know, that, that Maskelly, for example, necessarily killed Michael Moore. Um, it's possible that he may have sort of, um, sort of gotten um, a bit, um, you know, he wasn't even really want to go along with it, and then he, he left at a certain point. But I do believe there was a, a, a matching of three victims to three perpetrators, and and how you sort of see this is if um, if you buy into the psychology. Um, I don't mean where you believe it, just where you say, well, this may have happened in this, this scenario. Um, then you basically say, well, so so each of these three men were trying to uh, sort of transform themselves and, and they were using a young child, um, you know, the blood of the child, the life of the child to kind of infuse themselves with um, some kind of magical power. And that was the psychology anyway. But... What's really important there is that you need to now find the right um, um, energy or, or, or person to, to sort of give you what you want to get. You know, it's like it's like you, you want to drink the right energy drink kind of thing. And um, so, so you say, well, so how on earth could you sort of match them? Well, I think you would you would go into the psychology of a of an eighteen year old or a sixteen year old, and you would say, well. How would you choose your victim if you if you were uh, you know in that situation? And um, the fact is, um, Christopher Byers was a skateboarder. He was only one of the three kids who who was on a skateboard, and also had some sort of behavioural um, let's call them aberrations. And he, he was sort of a kid with sort of brown hair and brown eyes. So so he looked like he looked a little bit like Damien, a younger version. You know, basically, but the important part there was that, that he rode um, skateboarding. When, when you read Damon's narrative, skateboarding was a big deal in his life. And at, at one point, I think he actually said, you know, when he was younger, at one point he actually said skateboarding was his life. Interesting. He has a little boy mm-hmm. skateboarding, and, um, and, and Damien's, you know, trying to sort of resurrect himself or whatever. So anyway, that, that's that. If you take Stevie Branch, Stevie was uh, a bright child, um, definitely uh, standing out in, in some ways as a um, you know his intelligence in terms of the the trio of children, and and of course he had blonde hair and, and blue eyes. And, and if you look at uh, Baldwin, Baldwin was uh, not blonde, but he had red hair and, and he was sort sort of a fairer guy. And you know, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure whether Baldwin is, is, is smarter than than Damon Eccles. I don't think either of them are very smart as it is. But but you know, as it stands right now, Baldwin wants to become a lawyer. I think, and, and he's, he's studying. He's supposedly writing a book. He uh, put out a yeah. GoFundMe made thirty thousand dollars, and I think that was three years ago. So these guys have gotten their ability to. Uh, obtain money from their supporters is pretty remarkable. Mm. But he hasn't produced he's, a book. He's quite a studious guy, and he was he was working in the the library of the prison, and 
you know, you get a more of a sense of 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 that from him. I think that from Echoes, um, when Echoes talks about what he did when he was on Death Row, it's, he's reading Stephen King books and. It's not really, um, you know, I think at one point he said he was reading psychology, but, but then that didn't really interest him, and then he read history. Um, I don't really get a sense that, that Damien can really apply his mind um, in, in an educated sense the way that, that, that Baldwin does. But And then you have um, Michael Moore, who was, his, his father was the, the head of the Scouts, and you know, I think uh, at the time Michael Moore was wearing a like a scout uniform, and in a in a in a in a very sort of basic sense, you have this this little boy who is uniformed and and his life is kind of regimented, but but in a you know in a almost um, kind of fairy tale way, and you know, someone who's who's wearing this sort of little uniform. And from a stable, I think the only one of the three kids who was from a stable home. Right? Mike, Mike. And I mean, yeah, and so Miss Kelly um, was, I think, I think he, he quite liked the, um, I don't know, the um, uh, settledness of, of Michael Moore, but I don't really know whether Miss Kelly would have made uh, made a choice one way or another. I think the other two would have sort of made the selections or whatever. But what is interesting is, um, you know, that that there is kind of a match with the, with these three uh, victims to the three per perpetrators. You might say, well, was it accidental? I don't think it was accidental. Well, I mean, you're supported um, by the fact that people saw Eccles following the boys taking pictures. Do you remember that part in the case files? I know that they found pictures in the briefcase, and, and that's another area that's just got so many question marks is, why was there a briefcase? Why wasn't it uh, linked to someone? Right. Yeah, I mean, there were stories in the um, statements made to police about Eccles having a briefcase, pictures, them having drugs in the briefcase, all kinds of stuff in there. I don't think, I don't remember the briefcase being entered into evidence. I don't think they found it. Yeah. I do, but, you know, I would say, yeah, you know, I, I do, I always find it interesting, like, you know, what ultimately is the outcome of the case. So, you know, obviously these three were convicted, which means, you know, a jury, a jury listened to this case and convicted them. And to convict three young people of a, a crime that serious and, and one to actually get the death penalty is extremely difficult. I mean, that doesn't happen all that often. People don't want to have to convict young people. I mean, that you know, and it kind of goes against our human nature. So, I mean, I think it, it speaks to how strong the case actually was. Um, it was actually cases because it was two different juries. They actually yes. bifurcated sure. it. So, Miss Kelly was in a totally separate jury. So, twenty-four people unanimously found them guilty. Yes, great point. No, absolutely. And um, and I think, you know, so you kind of mentioned the families, and I think that's what makes this also a very interesting case is that the when you look at everybody else in the periphery of this, the, the families, the neighbors, the friends, it's it's such a confusing web of people, and, and a lot of them are not very sophisticated, not very intelligent, you know, from lesser means. They A lot of them are liars themselves. A lot of them are criminals themselves. It makes it very 
complicated. Yeah. And, and when you have, especially when you've got these families that, you know, where parents are abusive or neglectful or whatever, it does create doubt typically in juries. So we kind of touched on Casey Anthony a little bit and you say like, you know, everybody looks at that case and, you know, and says, what the heck happened? How in the world could these people look at that case and acquit her? And, and then you take a look at her family and you start to understand like how messed up her family was and what that jury heard and was exposed to. And you start to understand the psychology a little bit there about just how you can get so stuck in, um, you know, like the, what's going on with everybody else and, and then lose sight of what's going on with the person that actually perpetrated the crime. But that, that's something that's really, I think, really unique in what we do in our books is that it's not a story of just the crime or just the people that are immediately involved. It's a story of the town. It's a story of the culture. It's a story of human beings. Like I think People use that word evil a lot, and certainly in this case they do because of, you know, the satanic worshiping, but we don't look at evil as like uh, a separate entity, you know, it's not, not something out there floating in space that causes people to do certain things. Everybody who's a criminal is a human being. And, and so like trying to understand what drives those actions is the most challenging part of these cases. And it's something that Nick, you know, really brilliantly did in, in this book and certainly, you know, with the rest of the narrative that's to come, as well as in the work on John Bonet was to understand the psychology from the, the perspective of the perpetrator, who we believe is the perpetrator, um, from, from their, from their eyes. So getting into the mind of a child, getting into the mind of a teenager, it's very different than thinking about it. Like from our perspective, from an adult, you know, that's lived a certain amount of years, that's lived maybe a more stable life. Um, you're not going to see the case the same. You're going to look at these cases and say, ah, there's no way they did that. I, I can't believe that. Uh, you can't look at it that way. You know, you need to see it from a different view, a different level. Well, that's a great point. Did you take the position uh, regarding the John Bonet case that the most recent TV show did? Um, uh, yes and no. Okay. Um, we we do believe in the position in our books is that um, our opinion is that Burke is the perpetrator of the the crime. But the, this crime, I mean, it's not. There's a lot of different levels of what happened to John Bonet. There's the the head bashing. There's the strangulation. There's the staging, there's the cover-up. And so if you're talking about, you know, who who killed her, I mean, we believe that, you know, the all of the Ramses killed her. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but we, do, we, ha we do have, for very specific reasons, um, a belief that Burke was responsible. Um, and I won't go into great detail about that, but the... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... Well, people um, can read your books on Amazon, so if you guys want to see the full case, you guys have done accessible books, you know, broken into parts where, you know, people can uh, see what your conclusions are. They should. I mean, the reason why we have, you know, so many of those books tied together is because it really does unfold, and it kind of unfolds as, as we're researching and as we discover things. I mean, sometimes things go in a different direction, so it's 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 kind of... I hate to use the word fun because that sounds bizarre and true crime, but you know, people that enjoy that journey of trying to understand something, I think they can kind of come on that journey with us and, and it, and it really does kind of evolve just as the cases evolve. What, where we differ from what um, CBS did with their show was 
you know, how they, how they believe that, um, you know, there was the pineapple and that John Benet ate a piece, her brother got mad and then killed her. Like, but we don't, that right. piece of it doesn't work for us. Okay. Um, that's not part of our theory. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean, that case is very, I mean, much like the West Memphis 3 case, that case is very convoluted. A lot of legal wrangling and changes within, uh, you know, the policing style and whether they were going to be, the parents were going to be indicted or not. There's a lot of things going on with uh, mm -hmm. the John Bonet. John Bonet case. Well, that, that's a that's a really big case for you know for making that explanation of you know coming into it as a detective like Lou Smith or whoever dealing with hundreds of murders or whatever. Well, have you ever dealt with a um, um, a, a child killing another child? That's a totally, totally different psychology. You don't bring in um, uh, uh, sadism and all that kind of thing to the extent that you do with an adult into a scenario like that, you know, within a family. And that's the other thing is you've got to look at, a, at the family dynamic, and the family dynamic involves many um, sort of areas. One of them, one dimension is sibling rivalry. And, you know, funny enough, today... Um, even though I've, I've, uh, Lisa and I have written eight books on this Ramsey case, today I came across a very old uh, case um, in, in Britain as part of my research into the Madeleine McCann case. And it, it's, uh, it's about someone called Constance Kent. Um, and it was a 16-year-old, I think, half-sister to, to a... Um, young boy, I can't remember how old, three years, six years old, um, and this woman, um, as a teenager, uh, murdered her younger brother, um, very, very brutal, um, uh, stab wounds, uh, it, it sounded like the sort of uh, murder of, of Nicole Brown um, Simpson, her, her head was almost severed from, sorry, the little boy's head was almost severed from um, his neck. And you know you wouldn't imagine that a that a young girl would do this to her own brother. And um, I haven't really gotten much into that case. But what what really struck me, and that's something I hadn't thought about in in I thought about it, but certainly not in in really great depth. But what was interesting about that case is um, one got the sense that Constance killed her brother not because she hated her brother. And not because she actually wanted to kill her brother. She actually killed her brother to send a message to her parents who were making her life hell. And it's kind of like a way of her parents loved uh, the little boy and, and you know, there, were, there was a lot of sort of dysfunction going on and people having affairs. And it was kind of a way of saying, can you pay attention to me? Do you know what I mean? And in other words, like a, almost a spiteful way of saying, um, you know, this is... Let's make this about me, and forgetting that there's someone's life at stake and so on. And uh, what's very really interesting about that case is she she actually confessed to to a priest, uh, you know, the, the the crime. And then there's all question about well, should should that, you know, it's almost like uh, priest sinner privilege, you know, you, right. that kind of thing's not admissible. Right. It's a really, really interesting case in that in that sense. Yeah. Well, you can actually analogize some of those circumstances within the John Bonet Ramsey family that and the West Memphis Three in the sense that these were older, kind of more corrupt boys who might have seen these 
younger kids as, you know, more promising than, rather than their corrupt CD lives, you know, of like pretty much near-do-well teenagers, you know, seeing these young kids, and that's part of the sacrificial aspect, but they might have had, you know, some kind of jealousy of them. You never know, because both Baldwin and Eccles were just from Trailer Park, you know, mm-hmm. Nightmare Families. I mean, Ramsey, I mean, Baldwin himself is actually the offspring of cousins. His mother had sex with her cousin, and he's like, like here in the States, that's like uh, kind of a joke that we make, people make about the South, and here they are in the South, in Arkansas. One of the interesting things people have told me about West of Memphis, too, is that it's largely African-American, but they bar- barely are even brought up in the whole West, West of Memphis narrative. There are a few African-American characters there, too. But it's definitely, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, as far as the West Memphis thing, there's a lot of elements going on there. Um, some of the other stuff is, like, just their their deception, the occultism. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of some of the stuff you found out about Damien Eccles? Sure, we well, can. I think the, I think the obvious... Um, Lisa, I'll let you jump in in a second. I think the obvious thing to start off with, um, what frustrates me about these cases, especially when there are documentaries like this, Making a Murder as well, even the stuff surrounding Amanda Knox, is um, I, I, what, what, what I don't understand with a lot of people who are sort of like going, well, you know, uh, could they be guilty, whatever, or start at the most obvious place. Do they have an alibi? Uh, if you had an alibi, then, then that's the, that's the end of the the, the story. Um, someone with an alibi, they don't, that you can't implicate them, and, and then it's very simple. Right. And if they don't have an alibi, um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty. But but what is the what is the story? And you know when you when you when you look at um, all 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 three of the alibis. I mean, Miss Kelly. Confessed, but later on he said you, you went to a wrestling match or something. Um, none of them add up, um, and, 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 and some of them don't add up really, really badly. You know, there, there are multiple fake alibis. Yeah. And, and Miss Kelly's fell fake. apart on the stand. Baldwin did, Baldwin's attorney didn't even offer one at trial. He's recently yeah. been saying that his alibi yeah. was this young kid, Dan Nam. I have him on video stating that Dan Nam, this Vietnamese kid, saw him at uh, Walmart. But then Dan Nam recounted and said, I got it a week later. But he's still proffering that. And he actually stated that in front of uh, Devil's Not author Mara Leverett. And she didn't even bat an eye. She did not retract. She didn't go, oh, that's a deceptive part of the of the case, uh, Baldwin. Uh, you can see that video at uh, William Ramsey Investigates. Where he, she, he lies and she doesn't do anything. It's incredible. Is it, don't you find it like, I mean, it's astonishing to me, like, the the gall that it takes to you know we we believe for various reasons that these people were you know that directly did this and you know just you know like Amanda Knox right and then they go out and they go on these press tours and they write books and they go to parties and they're you know smiling and and uh, on film and that's I mean that to me is um I think some people look at that and they think, like, at a very, like, just on the surface, they think, oh, well, surely they must be innocent because, you know, look how adjusted they are. I mean, they're out there. I mean, somebody who killed surely wouldn't go out there and do all those things. But that's so naive. I mean, it it does happen all the time. And it actually, I think it actually really speaks to the depths of 
their ability to deceive and to lie and to be okay with that. I agree. I mean, why, when I watch Amanda Knox and some of these interviews on TV, she's a great liar, man. She's amazing. She keeps a straight face, doesn't blink. Um, and Eccles, you know, they don't ask really any of these important questions. I've seen just astonishing interviews that just make me just open my jaw wide. Like, what? Like, he'll be on with on NPR with Goodman, and the director of West of Memphis is talking about prehistoric beasts, these, these giant snapping turtles that materialized in the middle of nowhere and walked to the case and then disappeared. They walked there and scratched the kids and ate certain parts of their bodies and then dematerialized. And these people don't even question, like, huh? What are you saying? Like, there's stuff where they're on the view. And the same thing, I mean, I give Janine Pirro some credit because she actually kind of acts a, uh, an incisive comment to Eccles. But these, I mean, it's incredible to watch Damien Eccles, who's a guilty and remains guilty at law of degree, you know, of killing the kids, just, mm -hmm. just move along. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, no, no. Uh, I don't actually think um, Amanda Knox is a good liar. I think um, she's she, she is quite an attractive um, person. Right, the Foxy um, Knoxie. How much money do you think she made on her book? Didn't she make a million dollars or something at advance? Yeah, she, she made, she made quite a million. Solicitor yeah. did as well. Her solicitor did? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, who, was, who, was her, who was her attorney? Was it an Italian guy? Um, sure, that, that's going so far back into the case oh. file. I, wonder, I think it must have been because um, yeah, was an they were, court, yeah, they, so. they weren't American. She didn't. Oh, gotcha. I mean, she, she obviously they've got they do have legal team here in America, but that, not that she did have foreign uh, lawyers represent her and during they, the case. They sold but, the book. I'm not. I'm not sure. At, at, at one point, um, Amanda Knox's book wasn't. Um, she wasn't allowed to publish it elsewhere, and I think she also got sued for allegations she made against the police. And uh, I think to date, she's still not she's not paid what she was supposed to pay. Now, in other words, for slandering the police. Didn't she slander Lumumba? Didn't the, guy, the black guy who was her boss at the bar? Didn't she? Didn't he sue her too? I don't remember. Yes. Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah. I, I, I know she didn't pay him either. So. But, but just to touch on what you were saying about the straight face, um, you know, um, someone someone sent me a little video clip of, of Amanda Knox in, in an interview, which I'd seen before, and, um, you know, w when you watch these people being interviewed, um, you do start uh, picking up on micro-expressions and you, you do see that that they matter. It's not it's not a case of um, um, sort of looking for things that aren't there. A lot of them do have these uh, micro expressions, and and they do and they're trying to hide them. And um, in in the particular case that that that, that I saw, um, she she specifically asked, um, you know, did you kill Meredith Kircher? And the the corner of her mouth. Um, tilts up and she she sort of immediately sort of covers it up, um, you know, by sort of making a, a expression and and answering the question. And I actually tweeted that, and then someone uh, found an even better example where 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 she actually openly smiles and sort of looks upward, and then she, um, you know, adopts a, a very sort of more um, 
serious expression and she carries on talking. Um, and I've actually, I'm actually, um, it's really appalling to see, but but it's also um, very, very, it's very universal. You actually see quite a lot of uh, that kind of amusement, which they call duping delight, where where, where pe people are saying, you know, did you do that? And, and then they, they'll answer, as you say, with a straight face, but but they're trying to mask the the delight, the, the thrill of, of the fact that they know something that nobody else does. And, now, when you take someone like Damien Eccles and, and uh, Baldwin, they were very, as you say, they were sort of um, social outcasts. They were social losers. They were they were sort of in a very um, uh, in a very bankrupt society in a way, and 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 so this this whole. Um, this whole adventure that they went on, this whole misadventure, basically gave them, in a way, what they wanted. They wanted to be acknowledged. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted, um, and and as much as we can say, well, wow, for murder, you know, um, but they have they have incredible support. They 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 probably never had that amount of social. I mean, the social acknowledgement is, is like a tsunami. That they, they, they've had films made about them. They, they've got book deals. They've got all this kind of thing. And was, from where they were coming from, it's it's uh, it's it's an absolute almost validation or vindication of, of literally what they were doing. Right. It's so they like, wanted to become. Eccles uh, himself said in West of Memphis, "I want to be the greatest magician that ever lived." Yeah. He sacrifices three young boys and. Fame, fortune, everything that the Satan's promises are you know, becomes realized. He's friends with Johnny Depp and Peter Jackson, these A-list Hollywood celebrities flying around, going to their houses, staying with them. It's it's really. But you know, I, yeah, I mean, I I think you know if you if you really apply logic and you think about put yourself in somebody's shoes, if you were truly innocent of something, then you spent all of those years in prison for it. Um, you would be so scarred and so upset about that whole experience for a number of different reasons, not only for your own losses, but the fact that it was, you know, that it was on the back of three kids dying. Um, you know, when you come out of that situation and you get your freedom again, I really can't fathom um, somebody who is a, you know, who uh, <laughs> who's innocent wanting to be a part of all that pomp and circumstance. Um, you, you really, you don't ever see from those guys um, any sense of uh, how they feel about, you know, the kids that were killed or how they feel about their families. I mean, they, you know, like it's it's all about them. And uh, it, it's always about them. And, and that, that's, I think that's a real sign. I mean, it's not the only sign. Obviously, it's a lot of things that add up. But, but that's just another indicator that there's something very wrong. Excellent uh, point. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just something else. Is, it's really one of the most unique for me criminal cases. Not that I've researched as many as you guys. But just the fact that post-release in, well, everything leading up to release, the fact that they raised 10 to $20 million dollars that they were able to hire the best PR people, the best attorneys, appellate attorneys in the United States, get out, and then be yeah. faded like uh, heroes by the media, HBO, all these people. It's uh, nothing else. I mean, when I first published in 2012, people just thought I was, you know, some crazy person from the wilderness. They couldn't even comprehend that I'd actually read through the court cases and published. By the way, my book was put up on the... Uh, the Supreme Court of Arkansas website and sat there right under John Grisham's books. Um, but John Grisham is actually a supporter 
uh, Damien Eccles and I yeah, really yeah, said so yes. And yeah. I, I know that you guys read Life After Death, and John Grisham wrote this uh, pleasant blurb about it. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that was just an interesting thing. But yeah, it's just uh, it's really unique in that sense. This whole PR aspect, and God only knows who got paid off, who's, who's getting paid under the table. I don't know. Uh, you know what? John Douglas. Yeah, John Douglas. <laughs> yeah, there's another one. I mean, every time I talk to people about Douglas, it's just like, yeah, they they don't understand. Like, did he read the case? And I include John uh, a bit about John Douglas at the end of Abomination, like, and I titled one of the seconds yeah. "Failure to Read" because he obviously didn't read the case. Because <laughs> he did, he honestly says, "There's nothing in the case records that would indicate these people had a propensity for violence when they were all." on probation or Eccles had been arrested and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, John yeah. Douglas deserves a, a narrative of his own. I mean, yeah, we, we have some serious issues with that yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we came across John Douglas in the John Bonet Ramsey case and it was also like huge eye rolling, you know, just like basically John Douglas said basically what John Ramsey's, um, Profile was you basically just echo John Ramsey's profile and um, um, do you, was I he, don't know, do you know if he was paid by the defense or paid by their rep, their legal reps. Do you know if there yeah. was a relationship or how that he worked? Was paid, he was paid. Yeah, well, he was paid. Okay. He's, he's, a, he's a hired gun basically. And do you have any you know, idea? Was there um, a number bandied about? Did you ever find that out? No, uh, no. But do you know um, what? What I I would like people to realize with with Lisa and I is, you know, we not um, we don't sort of have a mercenary approach to true crime. You know, if we wanted to sell more books on um, the Westwood Memphis three case, it would probably um, the business case would be to to um, say why all three of them are innocent and, and, and tell that story. Because you know, Damien has got something like sixty thousand followers on Twitter. Um, also, Amanda Knox, she's got she's got quite a lot of support. Um, same with Stephen Avery. Um, the, the the amount of people who support them are, are really vocal. I don't think it's it's quite as many as, as many people think, but uh, it's quite vocal. Whereas the people who don't um, who don't know or, or don't agree either don't say anything or they they don't really care. But what I'm trying to get at is if, if we wanted to sell more books. Um, uh, Amanda Knox, Stephen Avery, and, and also West Memphis Three. We we wouldn't be telling the narratives that we are telling. We don't come here with a horse in the race, not, not even a financial incentive. Basically, just come and we say, okay, let's let's figure this out. Let's figure out this apparent mystery. And invariably, there's no mystery. There's just a lot of PR. Um, you, you don't really need to dig very deep in order to very quickly see a whole spectrum of, um, of obvious deceit. And for me, the perhaps the most obvious deceit, William, you, you can probably um, attest to this as well, um, is just the, the very simple thing of where did Damien live at the time of the crime, right? In, in countless interviews, that's kind of his main sort of um, uh, argument, is that he didn't even live in West Memphis. He was right? a Marian, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's his story, and um, you never get anyone really nailing him down on that. Um, you know, I you can nail him down on what he's saying by by reading his book as well, but by seeing exactly where he's saying 
um, that he lived or he didn't live. And, you know, it turns out he lived for years in the, um, those apartment blocks right the May, in front of... The Mayfair um, Apartments. The Mayfair Apartments were across just, yeah. a ditch from Robin Hill, Robin Hood Hill. So he looked... Yeah, exactly. One of those I mean, apartments you could look out into Robin Hood Hill. Um, yeah, I mean, they literally those apartments literally loomed over that that sort of um, wooded area. Yes, Where, and and he he lived there as a child, and 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 this is what's so fascinating when you read these accounts from from people who are prime suspects in in murders, like Amanda Knox and like um, Damien Nichols is. Uh, if you don't know the case, you're probably not, you're probably going to miss it, um, and, and if you're not a very critical thinker, you're also going to miss it. But when when David Nichols talks about the Mayfield Apartments, he says, "Well, he doesn't mention uh, Robin Hood Hills at all. He doesn't mention it being right across um, from there. He doesn't mention it." Um, when he when he talks about being a little child growing up there. Um, he, he says, "Well, he would dig holes to amuse himself, and that's it." So, so he never went to swim in in a, in a sort of creek there. He never went to play in the in that sort of forest where all the other kids were playing, where those three kids were murdered. He never he doesn't mention that at all. Um, so, yeah, it's it's those um, those sort of holes in the narrative that that that, that are a real problem. Yeah. Another thing is when you. Just again, you just do a little bit of research and you look at where everyone lived. You you, you find a, a map and you and you you know go and Google Earth and you just go and look at the addresses and just find out that's where that person lived. Um, and it turns out you have um, Baldwin, Domitia, and um, Damien's father all sort of living in the Lakeshore area, which is uh, you know uh, on the on the on the. Yeah, it's a trailer park um, on one side of the highway, and and then you have the, the Robin Hood Hill sort of in the in the in the center, and then on the other end of if you had to draw a diagonal line, you have uh, Damien Eagles where he was staying. Uh, what was it called? The Broad Broadmoor or Broadway? Broadway. Yeah, something like Broadway trailer park. And so in order for Damien to get to um, his father, or, 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 or um, Baldwin, or um, or his girlfriend who was pregnant at the time, he had to. If you draw a, a line connecting where he was staying to to Lakeshore, it, the line basically goes right through um, Robin Hood Hills, and not only that, it goes through the sort of neighbourhoods of the three victims. So, and and he didn't have a car, and that's the other thing people have got to remember. It's not. So, you know, you would be driving around there. This was an 18-year-old guy who, who, whose, whose girlfriend was pregnant and was living off mental disability checks. And he's walking, um, you know, four or five miles a day. It takes about an hour or so to walk that distance. And he's passing by through these neighbors every day. And it's another thing he mentions in his book is he, he was constantly walking. He was always walking around kind of thing. What happens when you walk around? You you see people. You 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 in in um, environments like under bridges and whatnot. And you know, if you're doing that every day as a teenager, um, those those are your playgrounds, you know. Right. And so right. I'm just saying um, this whole idea that he didn't live in um, in West Memphis 
makes me wonder someone like his wife, Laurie Davis. Right. Um, did she when 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 he said things like that that that, that he, he never lived in West Memphis? Doesn't that like set off a little spark in her mind where she goes, well, actually he did, but it's no big deal. You know, and it just makes one wonder how many times would she do that? Oh, well, he said that's not really a big deal. It doesn't really matter. Um, you know, something that really blew my mind was that Damon X actually got married on death row. And, um, you know, he, he was sort of saying how isolated he was or whatever. I'm someone who's pretty isolated as an author. You know, I'm writing constantly. Uh, you know, I don't sort of interact socially that much in yet. Yeah, I was watching Damon giving interviews to Larry King and so on, and he's, he's um, eloquent. He's, he's, he's very socialized. And on the one hand, he's saying to Larry King, no, um, you know, I don't, I don't really get to talk to people and uh, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, he's having three-hour conversations once a week with someone who eventually married him. I mean, that, that's quite a fabric of, of contact, you know. And that's besides journalists. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting point about Lori. I mean, I think we all, you, you kind of wonder about people in that situation. Like, what um, <laughs> what is he saying to you and why do you believe it? You know, that, that could be a whole other narrative too, or people. And it, we've, we've talked about this actually in other cases. We did, certainly in Jody Arias's case, like where her family um, shows up to court and, you know, and in interviews and stuff like that. I mean, although they weren't in a lot of interviews, but like, you know, towards the end of the trial, you know, they, they really supported her in her story that this was self-defense, you know, a guy that she stabbed 28 times, slit his throat, shot him in the head, that it was, you know, a lot, and a lot of those stabs, by the way, were in his back, that it was self-defense. And you think, what in the heck, like, how, how can these people believe these stories? I, I understand it's your loved one, I get it, but how can you truly stand there and say, I, I support this person, I believe them, you know, what's going on in their minds? And yeah, no, I think I, I've often thought that with Lori too, like what, what does she see that like, you know, that, that we're somehow missing and, and obviously then you have to dig into their background. Yeah. Admittedly, I don't know much about Lori. I'd be very curious to study her a little bit more. People have researched her and had trouble verifying certain uh, dates and times where she was okay. uh, supposedly in New York. And there was a rumor going around that she actually had sent letters to other people, um, not just Damien. And Damien was the one who responded. So uh, she might have just been farming for some death row inmate. You know, I think it's just one of these weird phenomena yeah. where some of these women, like there are women who latched on to, uh, was it Richard Ramirez, uh, the guy, yeah. the Night Stalker. He had women riding him and fighting over him. This is a guy who like did unspeakable acts. Uh, against yep. other people. So Damien Eccles, same thing, you know. Um, people have speculated oh, when is their relationship over. I guess they have like a, there's a third party. It seems to be like another woman who's something's going. Yeah, on. yeah, I've seen that. I've seen her photograph. Yeah. yeah. So. And then yeah. Like Bundy had a bunch of women who were in love with him when he was executed as well. You know. Yeah, it's very yeah. strange. Yeah, very strange. But you know what I, I think. William, you sort of touched on it um, briefly. Um, I, I think the attraction of these people is, um, I don't think that they would acknowledge it themselves, but it's basically through this person, no matter what they are associated with or accused of, but, but through this person is a vessel towards significance. So as the 
person in the public that's sort of you know some kind of anonymous person living a what they may feel is a bit of a meaningless life, they they latch on to the narrative of a um, you know this, this criminal, and they then become significant. They become acknowledged. They they um, become activated, and they become part of the narrative themselves. And Laurie features in a movie and, and that must feel very good and, and she gets to meet people like um, uh, Jackson and Fran Walsh and all these people and, and that beats the, the insignificance and the anonymity of the previous life and I think that, that uh, in a number of ways that justifies um, why I'm not going to think about you know where, where Damon lived or the, him mentioning that I'm not, not going to bother about that in other words, it's uh, I'm getting more I'm getting more out of this than than I'm losing. So that's basically it. Right. Well, know. there's two. There's a couple. Yeah. No, I think there's a couple different um, psychologies that that play into that. I do. I mean, obviously, there's your outright, you know, let's say gold digger mentality, um, where you know you're gonna you know you're gonna gain something and you're aware of it and you you go after it and there's that. Um, but then you have this other personality, and and I think sometimes a lot of it could potentially be subconscious but um they i think certain people they thrive on the ability to like find somebody who's like seriously broken and then um like nick was saying i mean one one benefit of that is that you know you are you're kind of filling yourself up because now you're interjected into something that's bigger than you and you've got exposure and people care about you but then there's also this sense too of like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be the one to put this person's life back together and that's gonna be on me and then i'm gonna get the accolades from that right. and you know and so i think you know i think sometimes if you were to confront somebody like that they may not even be aware of it or, or maybe they are to, to some extent but I think like some of them and, and maybe Lori is one of these people that truly believes in their mind that like, yeah, this person had some troubles in their background, but it's not, it's not that bad and we can actually fix it and we can go on and have a good life and everything could be all rosy and sunny. And, you know, it's, it sounds crazy, but you can actually see where people thrive off of that. Absolutely. It's called hybristophilia. It's actually people talked about that in some of the West Memphis three uh, message boards or Bonnie and Klein syndrome. Some different. Yeah. There's some lady who studied him and is exactly what you're talking about. I can change this person. He's not the same as he was. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything's changed. And so they have all these rationalizations why, you know, mm -hmm. everything's different. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very remarkable. So, yeah, uh, it is. So we've... Uh, noticed, sorry, go ahead. I just mentioned this. Have you noticed how um, Damon Eccles' narrative is so self-pitying? It's so much about how... He's suffered and, and uh, you know he's he's dying and he's he's, he's ill and he's going his blind. His teeth are about to fall off. He, he had a little, <laughs> yeah, yeah. His teeth are falling out. He's got to use um. He had to use his Reiki. hands. He's got to use eat. Reiki, the magical touch Reiki, or else his teeth would have fallen out. Yeah. yeah. He had to learn how to walk again. Um, all, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, the piss now, blood. The guards what, beat him what, what so bad. He pissed blood. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what I think is going to be very interesting with Laurie and him going forward, I mean, he's only been out of jail a couple of years, but what's really interesting is it's one thing to have these guys in jail and, and everyone's fighting for their innocence and, and, and justice and whatever, but now you're out of jail 
And now that whole narrative of poor me and um, how badly I've been treated starts to be becomes a bit long in the tooth because you, you're now out of jail, so, so now you've now got to get a job and have a life and be a decent citizen. And, and um, what if you're not? What if you're not a decent citizen? Um, I mean, how long can you play the, the victim? Um, presumably for, 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 for a fair amount of time, but, but then eventually... It's it still going on. Well. They're interviewing him about a recent or an upcoming death penalty. Uh, somebody's being put together put to death in Arkansas, somebody he said he was friends with, and he's been making the publicity rounds on a couple podcasts saying, you know, the same old story, the sob story, and the uh, the kind of hoster saying, oh yeah, you were so unjustly convicted and keeping this kind of uh, narrative alive, so it's still happening, I mean, it's current. He said he was going to go back to Arkansas to witness these deaths. Now that he's out, I think that... that um that thrill and that, you know, I, I, I'm saving you. Well, well, he's now saved, and now you've got to live with one another every day. What's that like? Um, That's a good point. I'm he's under sure. probation <laughs> until 2021. He's a con convicted of first-degree yeah. murder. Uh, I assume it's tough to find a job. You know? Yeah. So I don't know how he... I think he's, been, I mean, he, he's done tarot reading, and he's done the odd photographic uh, uh, exhibition, but... You know, William, what's so interesting with these cases is when you look at it from, in other words, you draw a thread from the backstory, you know, the, 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 where these people originated from and their background, the crime scene itself, and then the aftermath, after conviction and so on. What's very really interesting with, with Damien Nichols is, um, you know, you might say, well, now I think this whole wicker thing is overblown, whatever, but if you look at it, if you look at him today, you look at his Facebook photo, uh, which is like a mirror image of Alistair Crowley. You look at uh, you look at how he conducts himself, um, the tattoos and so on. He's still very interested in the occult. You can look at his Twitter page. Um, it's got like a weird signal, uh, um, sort of insignia. I'm not saying that that's satanic, but it's certainly um, part of Damon's personality is that he's really interested in these dark subjects right and was and, uh, prior, to the, prior to the crime and all the way today yeah. i mean he's associated with some very hardcore occult figures people like genesis p orge there's pictures of him with him um, and some of the people who came out of the woodwork yeah. to support him in salem were associates of p orge and i don't know if you heard the whole story of mike platt you know mike blatty lived in salem uh when damien eccles was there mike blatty was the son of the recently deceased uh peter blatty who wrote The Exorcist, yeah. which was a book that was found with Damien when he was arrested. And Blatty was actually, Mike Blatty, when he was in Salem, he's moved to Oregon now, but uh, he uh, he was on the message boards of the Patch, which was kind of a local Salem message board, and the the kind of commentary that went on there, I can send it to you guys, but it was very fevered. I was involved, Mike Blatty was involved, and... Uh, yeah, so Mike Blatty and I have kept in touch. We actually you know, we are just going to Salem makes a statement. Um, well, he's made that statement. Just Nick, he's made yeah. that statement that he felt comfortable in Salem because that was the, the home of the witches. So why would you say yeah. that? Why would you say that you're comfortable in the home of the witches if you're not? If this is a supposedly a witch hunt, you know? Uh, you know because if you look at um, if you look at his Instagram, Dame Nichols' Instagram, he's got photos of himself 
in front of the doorway where Alistair Crowley had an apartment. In New York, right. And, yeah, and I think he's sort of there to celebrate his birthday or whatever, his, his what, 130th birthday, whatever it was. And then when you take that and you go back to trial, and, you, and people are asking um, Damien about, does he know about Alistair Crowley? And Crowley's a really, really dodgy dude, uh, also a guy who fancied himself as, as, a, as a god, but a kind of a, um, not a very benign um, dictator, you know, spiritual presence, but of a, he's just, he's just um, the way he presents himself talking about Crowley is sinister. And so to have this person as your um, idol and your model, um, and then going to go... Well, that's what, that's what Eccles said on the stand. He said, a guy who believes he's a god, just like you said, you know. And that's the reason why I got involved in the yeah. case, was that part of the video that I saw where the prosecutor, I think it was Price, was asking questions about Aleister Crowley. Do you know a little bit about this he guy? Sort of just in a way, where he, he's, he's almost like in court saying, yeah, well, he, he thought he was a god, but in a way that is playing to the jury, not in a genuine way, not, not what he genuinely believed. Well, yeah. he's he's admitted within you know the I mean? last couple of years, Damien Eccles has said that he was prosecuted, and this is his own writing, he was prosecuted because of his love for Aleister Crowley, which is a fascinating statement within the context of that trial, because up until that trial, the prosecutors and people investigating him did not know the totality of his interest. So he's confirming that he had an interest by stating that in the last couple of years, he has confirmed he had an interest prior to the events of 1993. Um, so all that stuff was missing. And I included in my book the fact that his mother was taking him to bookstores to find these books and that he had had access to all these other books, whether it was a Wiccan book or Once Upon This Broom or what, a Broomstick. You know, these all these very different books. He was definitely reading them. But Crowley, and the fact that he wrote in Life After Death, which you read, that he had done the... Um, the Holy Guardian Angel ritual, which Crowley said is his, it was Satan. So he's saying that while he was in jail, he was trying to contact Satan. He's trying to say that in guide and bailed, you know, Crowley in terms. And he's a member of the OTO. I don't know if you guys came across that, but he uh, is a member was a member of the Arkansas OTO and gave the Arkansas OTO his library. Yeah. Well, what what I want to um, address in the second book. Um, for, uh, freaks of the Forest is um, I've done a little bit of cursory research already but I want to sort of really um, uh, immerse myself and the reader into that narrative is the, the, the sort of Wiccan um, Wiccan by the way is another word for uh, witch or witchcraft and, and, and uh, at the time Damon did in, when he was in court he did he said that's what he was he said he was a Wiccan um, now, the, the, they've got rituals, they've got some very uh, well-known rituals that have to do with um, um, rebirth and, and, and all sorts of things. I think there's one that's called the Great Rite, right, yeah. and, and there's, a lot of, um, um, there's a lot of information around that, you know, has to do with numbers and, and dates and, and procedures and rituals and so on. And um, there's another aspect that I think people are quick to dismiss or, or not even think about is um, if if Damien was a student of this stuff, then then what was he actually a student of? And and you see there there are these rituals of rebirth, and and it involves things like blood and 
and, and certain animals like dogs and um, times of, of, of day and, and the moon and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, you know it becomes very um, compelling in, in that particular area you know so that's something I really want to address in detail are the, some of the, those, those rituals and and how that played into the whole thing I did I did cover to some extent in King of Freaks the our history, our, 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 our human, um, the, the human sort of endowment. Yeah. yeah, and you know when you when you and, and that, that that's what's quite important to acknowledge is you look at at, at you know people watch the documentary and they, they think there's there's hysteria around Satanism and Satanism is this sort of very exotic, crazy notion and yet it's, it's really I'm not saying Satanism specifically I'm just talking about this ritualized human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are Christians um, are buying into a kind of ritual sacrifice where, where a person dies and his blood washes over everybody. And in other words, it's actually far more um, part of our society than, than, than we we willing to admit. And um, and that, that's part of what Lisa and I do try to do is to uh, locate these crimes in society and say, this is not as... Um, this is not evil. Right. This is this is you and me. This is this is the family society. Well, yeah. I mean, what I encountered when I was researching this case—not only people saying it was a witch hunt or a satanic panic—but they would quote this landing report that said there were no occult crimes. So, in my book, I referenced tons of occult crimes that show that people who are motivated by occult ideas commit crimes, and that it's a, the criminal crimes are a direct result of their occult philosophy. And I think the FBA, this landing report, is very deceptive. People, re Somebody just recently sent me that, oh, the landing report proves conclusively there are no such things as occult crimes. Well, they just had something in Texas where two illegal aliens killed a woman for occult reasons. So it's, it's, it's preposterous to actually think that if you actually can read and do your own research yourself. So, you know, to believe that Eccles is motivated by occult ideas is not beyond the pale, particularly when you realize what he thinks of himself. You read about what he talks about, um, whether the king of freaks, you know, he says, I mean, you you know the thing. He says, here's an artillery captain, a fiercely grinning fool with red flayed cheeks, Damien by name, never to be Michael Hutchison again. You know, so this guy, and this is another aspect that you talk about, this idea of transformation or rebirth. It's a really a constant theme in Eccles' life. He changed his name from Michael Hutchison to Damien Eccles, you know, this, this, uh, this idea that, He's changing is definitely prevalent. So, um, occult crimes are out there, and you know it's uh, it's too unfortunate that people can't 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 realize that fact. Yeah, Lisa, you still there? I'm here. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, we've uh, we've we've gone about uh, an hour twenty two minutes of uh, recorded time. So, I think you know we should we should kind of wrap this up. Is there anything that you guys would like to cover? before um, we call it quits? I want to touch on something very briefly. Um, you know Anthony Hollingsworth? Yes. Um, that's, that's a very interesting family, you know, how all the relationships there. I mean, that is just a crazy bunch of people. But what, like I said to what, you, like when I was like doing some editing, I like there was one night like I sent Nick a message. I'm like, 
can you please help me? I'm like, who, like, who the hell, like, <laughs> you know, I like seriously, like was brain dead one night. I'm like, I can't, I can't keep the up. The family the trees are, are very complex, you guys. Like, who's cousins <laughs> with who and what's going yeah, exactly. on? Crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, something I just want to put out there to you, William, also to the listeners is, is this is a possibility, which is, um, you know, uh, Anthony saw um, Damien and another person on that service road, right? Right, the family. Um, the the family. Yeah, yeah. And, but they they basically thought, because they also related to Dominitia, they, they thought that, that um, Damien, this is the night of the murder, around about, I think it was nine. There's a little bit of... Um, discrepancy about the times, some said 9.15, others said 10.15, but the point being they saw Damien and another person dressed in black, covered in mud, walking down the service road. Also wonder what um, uh, Laurie must think of that. But, um, and, um, but, but the interesting thing is they thought that they saw Damien with Dominitia, right? And the prosecution's case was that it wasn't Omni, it was Baldwin, right? Yeah, both of long so they both had sort of red, red hair, yeah. But, but what if they did see Damien with Dominique here? In other words, what if Dominique was there? And uh, I'm not sure whether there's, um, whether she has an alibi and whether that's, that's carved in stone, but, but it certainly is a interesting thought if, if there were, if it's actually the West Memphis Four. Agreed. Well, it could be the Memphis, West Memphis Five, the West Memphis Seven. There might have been other people there. If you include the, the strange events that happened at Bojangles, yeah. some guy walking into a bathroom covered in mud, which the area in Robin Hood Hills had to have been muddy. Um, so, you know, it could have been a bunch of people. I've always thought you know there were more people. Sketch? You know about that sketch that... Um, that Damien drew with the, the four tombstones. Right. The four right. tombstones, the, the full moon, the, the pentagram, the baby rattle. Yeah. Right. Now, now, for me, it kind of makes sense, three victims, three perpetrators, but Dominique was definitely a player by default in the whole thing because she was pregnant. And I don't know if you, I'm pretty sure you, you would know this, but the... There was also talk that that they that both of them had agreed on sacrificing their child. Right. You know, That's right. That was something that was that Deanna Holcomb or I forgot. Up. No, yeah, I think Deanna Holcomb said that there yeah, was that discussion. Think something like that. Yeah, I mean, you, you can really see a, a scenario where if if Dominique was totally into this activity, why wouldn't she have been there that night? Well, excellent point. She's definitely, Nick, she's definitely involved. Yeah. There's a picture of her in the case files where she is standing there. She's got her left hand held across her chest. And that's actually, I was found out later after reviewing that, that that is actually an occult gesture. You can actually see uh, Johnny Depp making the same gesture, Aleister Crowley in his famous magical pose. Uh, what it represents is, I will keep the secrets of the cult quiet. And so... She was definitely, and there were lists of her, the, the cops made lists of potential cult members or people who were involved. There were tons of other people who talked about the cult. The one guy, Alvis Clem Bly, his reference. And Damien Eccles had a downward-facing pentagram carved on his chest. So these people were heavy-duty. They weren't dabblers. 
And, yeah, like, and, and Dominique Tier's cousin was in San Bernardino writing some kind of weird vampire literature. Do you ever hear that story? No. Yeah, look at that. So Dominique Tier's family had her, it, it, her relatives had some kind of weird occult thing going on in California. Okay. Was that something Damien also said? He said, he said I'm a blood-sucking vampire. Yeah, something like that. Did he say that? Oh, well, and then Dominique Tier, she was interviewed by the police, and she said, Mom drinks blood, sister drinks blood, I drink blood, no big deal. i got to find that quote. So she said stuff, too. So she's... You know, that, yeah. you know that little scene, that went, something that bothered me, too, was towards the end of Paradise Lost, when um, after they had been convicted, and they show her, you know, really upset, and um, and they I forget exactly what the conversation was, but it essentially was like, you know, they were saying um, she was basically saying like she didn't care about anybody else. She didn't care about the victims. She didn't That's care about right. their families. She didn't care about any of them. And she says it over and over again while she's sobbing. And I was like, Jesus, I mean, like, that's like, you know, take, I mean, I, I get if, you know, if those are your emotions at the time, but that just, again, that was a very abnormal response to, to have for somebody that for children that were murdered, you know, there are so many things at the end of that first one where the responses are totally abnormal. Why would Damien Eccles say, I'll be the West Memphis boogeyman. Kids will look under their bed. Why would he say that if he was innocent? There's another clip where they're talking about no more beer, you know, which uh, there was the rumor that they were drinking beer that night. So, and he's just laughing it off. Like he's not attached to the gravity of the situation at all. And then, you know, Baldwin makes the comment, too, that, you know, when he's asked by his lawyers, you know, do you think maybe you should rethink your friends? And he's like, yeah. And he you know, basically says he doesn't, you know, in, in um, paraphrasing a bit, but he basically says, you know, that he, he shouldn't be friends with Damien and that he probably won't be, you know, going forward. And, uh, you know, so it's like, yeah. why would you say all those things if there, if there weren't issues there, you so know? True. And you see those and pictures of them together. They're sitting yeah. at the table. And Damien Eccles looks like a normal man. And Baldwin looks almost like a... Uh, like a wayfish, tiny little, easily dominated guy next to him, just like a sidekick. It's really, it shows them, to me, it shows their relationship, you know? Not a cool part of the book that, yeah, a cool, cool part of the book that, um, that I really liked that, that Nick did a great job with was, um, talking about why these three picked each other to be friends, you know, why they even came together the way that they did um, into this this perfect storm, which is a really interesting conversation. So I think people that read the book will enjoy that. Cool. Yeah. Um, anything else? Anything you'd like to add, Lisa? Um, not so much. I mean, just, um, uh, yeah, I, mean, I kind of mentioned that we're working on uh, Casey Anthony and also um, – uh, the Madeline McCann case. So those are going to be coming up um, this uh, actually May, May, June, July this summer. Um, so we seem to be on this very ghoulish tear of uh, dealing with murdered kids. It's gotcha. it's been pretty heavy. But um, those are all available yeah. on Amazon. Is that correct, or is there another place that they can find them? Do you have a website? We do have a website. It's Shakedown Title dot com, and you can get our books from there. Okay. Um, and we are also on Amazon and, um, you can check us out on Twitter as well. We're regularly on there as well as Facebook. Under your name, uh, Lisa Wilson, is that right? Or something else? Shakedown title? Uh, yeah. So we've got both on Facebook as well as on Twitter. We have a shakedown title account. Uh, so you can look there. Uh, my Twitter account is Lisa W J 13. Okay, and, right? uh, Yep, and then Nick is High Res Life, H-I-R-E-Z-L-I-F-E. H-I-R-E-Z-L-I-F-E at Twitter. 
LWJ13 at Twitter. And Shakedown title is S-H-A-K-E-D-O-W-N-T-I-T-L-E.com, just like it's spelled out, right? Correct. Great. All right. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. That was an awesome discussion. Right really. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Let's keep in touch. And uh, I really recommend this book. I, I'm looking forward to uh, two and three. But all the information in here, you guys have definitely uh, done your homework. So I really appreciate that. Cool. Thanks, William. All right, guys. Have a great day. You too. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.